news on CJOB with Richard Cloutier and Julie Buckingham. This is Manitoba 2019, the podcast. In a moment, our panel with my 680 CJOB colleague, Loren McNabb, Bonnie Staples-Lyon of Changemakers, and Curtis Brown of Probe Research. This goes beyond uh, roads and bridges. It includes... uh, Manitoba New Democrats uh, promising $6.6 billion for roads, hospitals, schools, creating some 50,000 jobs, they say in the first term. Leader Wab Canoe. As much as the infrastructure investments are important, I can't underline how important the new working relationship between the province and the city will be as well. The Manitoba Progressive Conservatives promising to put more money into tourism. Leader Brian Pallister. We're sending a strong message of support to ensure the continued growth and success of Manitoba's tourism industry and more great jobs for Manitobans. The Liberals promised to implement basic income to address poverty in our province, including raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. You can see all the daily promises on our Global News Promise Tracker at globalnews.ca and cjob.com. By the way, on infrastructure, Chris Lawrence of Manitoba Heavy Construction imploring all the parties and the leaders to come up with a long-term transparent plan. What is missing and what we're looking to hear from each of the party leaders is a commitment to do what the Premier has already started with health care and education. Strike a subject matter expert group with government and industry. Review how we fund core infrastructure now, how we should be funding it into the future. Target it so that the strategy is multi-year, long-term, 10, 15, 25 years with dedicated transparent revenue streams with end objectives so that the public can see the direction and see the purpose for which the funds are being put. How do we do that now? We don't. Uh, There is no public annual and five-year transportation investment strategy that the province is prepared to share. There is no condition and needs assessment of bridges and highways that the province is prepared to share. And that's not just this government. It's been previous governments as well. It's endemic to, unfortunately, the manner in which the province for decades has mismanaged infrastructure. So what do we know? I know that a lot of the fuel taxes that we pay go back into infrastructure, correct? Uh, According to the Gas Tax Accountability Act, fuel taxes are supposed to be reinvested in highway construction, and there is to be an annual report submitted to the legislature demonstrating that. And if there is an under-expenditure, it's supposed to flow into the next year budget. Has that been done? Uh, I would say that at least on the Gas Tax Accountability Act, the province has been compliant. Uh, The problem is that as I said earlier. That's only one component. That's only one component part of it. Uh, and, And the problem is that as important as it is to understand the needs of healthcare and education, if you don't understand your infrastructure, you don't understand that it's the basement of your economy. You can't import or export without a transportation system. You can't be a global trade player without a transportation system. Every product you buy at a store came to you via truck, came via road, shipped here, marine, air, road, rail, one of those four systems. So this is still the old political trade-offs that we see. Federal government comes in with infrastructure dollars and says, we have these priorities. Provinces to cities and municipalities, what are your priorities? And you all get in a room and there's some horse trading. That's exactly right. 
Richard Kluche with you. Decision Manitoba 2019, the Global News Podcast. Tuesday evening, the people behind trying to eliminate poverty in Manitoba, make poverty history, had a debate downtown. Now, all parties were invited. The progressive conservatives were no-shows. Michael Barkman is chair of Make Poverty History Manitoba. Michael, is this the first time you've been associated with a debate where a major political party has not shown up? I think so. Uh, we hosted a mayoral forum where one of the candidates didn't come, but yeah, this is the first time I've planned a debate where a, where a party didn't show up. You gave them all sorts of opportunity, though. You had notified them weeks ago, correct? Yeah. Um, emails, phone calls. I mean, also someone pointed out to me yesterday that we, everyone emails now, one email, and a, I think a party should be jumping on this opportunity. So, yeah, lots of notice, but uh, it's funny, even after one email with some of the other parties, they jumped on it right away. Nice to have the leader, but you weren't expecting the leader. You were expecting at least somebody from the progressive conservatives to show up. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah. We asked, it was a leader's debate and wanted it to be that, but made the offer that someone else would be would be fine. The liberals ended up sending a candidate, which was, which was totally fine. In 2016, we had a debate with four uh, candidates and no leaders. And that was good, too. I mean, these are folks who are, they're all going to be MLAs. Some might even be ministers. So, yeah, it'd be fine uh, not to have the leader, too. Your reaction? Um, yeah, I guess in some of the coverage today, and it's a bit of disappointment. Um, I think my kind of step back reaction is that um, these debates might be not taken as seriously by some of the parties as important to democracy, uh, which is maybe fair. There's only a couple hundred people there. Uh, but for me, it's, I mean, describing it as a bit chicken and egg. We need to do our part to make sure we get a lot of people out there. But I think the party should be jumping on these opportunities too. And to be clear, you didn't put the chicken in Brian Pallister's seat. No, it's a chicken and egg thing, but no, we didn't uh, <laughs> put that I believe it was there. the Green Party that yeah, did that. Yeah, it was the Green Party leader who put it in his opening comments uh, up there. Yeah, thanks for clarifying that. I demand an explanation. Let's bring in the panel now. My 680 CJOB colleague, Loren McNabb of The Start, pollster Curtis Brown of Probe Research, and Bonnie Staples' line of Changemakers Communications. She was communications director for... The Manitoba PCs in the late 1990s under Gary Fillman. All right, Bonnie, good idea or bad idea for the progressive conservatives to sit out the poverty debate? Incumbents, it is not in their best interest to go to a lot of debates because they have to defend, they have a record. If you're challenging, you can say anything and you have no record to stand on. So incumbents, doesn't matter what party, they don't like to do debates. That's the strategy. But is there a fallout as a result of that strategy? That really depends on who the group is. If it should be someone who naturally would vote for you or wants to actually hear your side. Very few votes in that room last night for the progressive conservatives. That's why they didn't show. So why don't you show, though, to take the hit and you don't have people like me saying they didn't show up? You know why, Richard? Because debates take a lot of time and energy to organize. Everybody out there wants a debate, and they have to pick their chances. The other thing is, with social media, anything that happens, if you do a misstep, it goes viral. There has been some suggestion over the past few weeks, and even on day one of the campaign, an article uh, that we posted on globalnews.ca, cgob.com, about likability, though, and the idea that Brian Pallister has admitted, in, in his own words, he's not someone you'd want to sit down and have a beer with, but he's not in it for the likes. He's in it to create change and policy and all the rest. Is there a strategy in keeping, knowing that that's his personality, in keeping a leader like that out of the mix and letting them control it more that way, because if you put him into the room, 
that likability factor might drop more. You're right, and that could happen. But the other thing about it is, again, you only have so much time, and if that group is not a natural to you, if something hurts with social media going viral, that'll hurt more than a chicken in the seat. I totally agree with what Bonnie's saying, and uh, I think that, um, you know, I think that certainly, I'm reminded a lot of, uh, you know, the, we saw those of the federal conservatives a few elections ago, and I'm, I'm reminded of uh, Marnie Larkin's comment about a particular uh, debate being a no-fly zone. Uh, and I think often that's the case, of, you know, where there is a, a situation where a candidate uh, is going to be facing a fairly uh, unfriendly audience. I think uh, that's what happens, that, you know, that's what happens, and that, that strategic decision is obviously made. So, Bonnie, you do one debate, or do you do a few debates? It would depend who's asking. If it's your audience, or if you think you're a better debater, or if you think you have a better 680 record. 680CJOB has a tradition of having debates with candidates in federal elections, provincial elections, and in municipal elections. And right now, they have not agreed to a radio debate. Should they? Well, given I'm on CJOB right now, absolutely they should, and I don't understand why. One hundred percent, absolutely. It's a bit different too, also when it is a when it is a media outlet or it's for a broader audience, as opposed to with when it's about a very um, uh, specific topic and for a very specific group of people. And I think that's part of the calculus that parties end up taking into account when they think about whether or not they should be in a debate or not. That being said, I mean those risks are always there. Um, there and social media absolutely magnifies it with media with um, any kind. Kind of debate. That's very true. But I also think Brian Pallister is a pretty good debater, and there's lots of Tories who are pretty good debaters. So I maybe they're just not getting back to you, Richard. My 680 CJOB colleague is Loren McNabb, Bonnie Staples Lion with Changemakers. Back in the 1990s, she was the communications director for the former Filman government. Curtis Brown is here from Probe Research. It's the Global News Podcast, Decision Manitoba 2019. Curtis, let's talk about Battleground Winnipeg because the candidates are spending the majority of their time in Winnipeg making Winnipeg-oriented announcements. Why is that so? It's because we see in our polling, we've seen this for quite a while, that even though there's a big gap between the uh, progressive conservatives and the other parties province-wide, uh, the PCs and the NDP are uh, quite close. Uh, the, in our last poll in June, they were tied. Uh, over the last couple of years, they've uh, been within a few points of each other. So that's a big part of it. Uh, that is where the uh, majority of the swing seats are going to be. Uh, and, and also just Winnipeg, just because of the size of it, it is the seat-rich part of the province. So that is, uh, that, that is really where government will be run at one and lost. Where are we looking? There was a number of ridings last time around that went blue, were, had been liberal, mm-hmm. or sorry, NDP rather, for years. What are we, what are we looking for? Well, I think there's a few different areas. Traditionally, the fight has been in South Winnipeg and West Winnipeg. I think this time it's shifted a little bit. And and the area that really intrigues me the most is Northeast Winnipeg, uh, because that is an area that was a bedrock NDP area for a long time. A lot of those seats uh, flipped to the Conservatives. Uh, three out of five flipped in the last uh, last election. And with the um, closure of the ER, the Concordia Hospital, uh, health care is obviously a big issue. It's something that that local area is concerned about. And also just, yeah, demographically, it's a bit of a, it's a bit different than some of the other parts of the city. It's a little more blue collar. Um, on paper and historically, it would be a traditional NDP area, but I think it's also one that you know the Conservatives would try to appeal to with maybe a little bit more of a populist um, message. But Bonnie, that is why the NDP is out at the two hospitals right now. They are trying to win those ridings back. Absolutely, they are, and especially, as Curtis mentioned, with the closure of Concordia. And in that way, 
if you're the NDP, are you just focusing in then Battleground Winnipeg on a handful of seats? It certainly appears to me that way. Well, for Wab Canoe, he has to win some more seats. In order to keep his leadership, he has to win more than 14. So he's going to go at the, you know, low-hanging fruit first, and then he can, you know, expand on that. But he's got to get some seats back. You think if he goes below that threshold that his leadership is, I mean, what's your benchmark for he hits that, hits below what, and then there's a leadership contest for him? I think if he doesn't keep 14, there could be. 14. I mean, I look at Gary Dewar. He started out with 11, but each time over the 11 years, he grew his seat count, so they stayed with him. They're, um, they're not as forgiving, and uh, I think he's got to at least get 12 seats. How about the Liberals in all this? They're running a pretty good campaign when it comes to announcements, but any traction with the Liberals at all? We'll have to see. Uh, This is something that happens in every provincial election where quite often the Liberals will announce a lot of policy, they'll announce a lot of things uh, early on in the campaign, and then they seem to kind of run out of gas around week two or week three. So far, they actually seem to be uh, holding their own. Uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the things that they've been announcing has been getting a lot of attention, and they're they're talking about a lot of different issues. Uh, so 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 we'll see. They seem to have some tra- seem to have a bit of traction in that sense. The other thing that's working against them a little bit this time is they're not going to get necessarily a lift from the federal Liberals. Um, in 2016, that was right when the Trudeau Trudeau, uh, Trudeau government was very popular, and uh, this time around, with them being in our polling, we're seeing them down a little bit. That's not going to be so helpful for the provincial Liberals. It might make it a little tougher for them. I've always felt or wondered that of all the parties, because the Liberals traditionally have had such little support in the past, what happens federally doesn't necessarily impact them on the provincial stage, unlike the NDP or Conservatives because of the popularity here. But we're, it's a different time now. And so the Liberals are connected no matter whether they like it or not, Bonnie. The Liberals are connected, but what the Liberals have to do provincially in Manitoba is actually get an organization on the ground and focus just on the Winnipeg City seats they can win. It doesn't matter who they get out in the rural area. They need to focus in Winnipeg, and they need to go after the NDP first before the Conservatives, because that's where they take more vote from. Yeah, that's something that's always been the Liberals' problem is the fact that that vote tends to be fairly dispersed. And we're seeing this with the Green Party now, too, where it's just it has to be more concentrated in certain areas. And a lot of that comes back to their organization and being able to, to win that. And it's interesting because I think, yeah, for the Liberals, besides there's sort of a few seats that are kind of in disparate parts of the city, like, uh, you know, they obviously have a lock on River Heights or they have for a long time St. Boniface with the leader's seat and then some in North uh, West Winnipeg that they're competing for. But there aren't a lot of other obvious ones that you would say that's a potential liberal pickup. You don't see that unless there is a real liberal wave like we saw with Sharon Carstairs exactly. back in the late 1980s. And no one is getting that sense at this point. Decision Manitoba 2019 podcast on 680 CJOB. Curtis Brown of Probe Research. Bonnie Staples-Lyon of Changemakers. And my 680 CJOB colleague, one of the co-hosts of The Start, Loren McNabb. Now, is it my imagination or is this a nasty campaign? that the leaders really don't like each other. Some campaigns, you know, off air, they like each other, they joke around. I don't get that sense at all that they like each other. Does that matter, Bonnie? I'm not sure it does anymore. Unfortunately, I think we're getting a bit of the South effect, the Trump-esque effect, that um, people now, the bar has become so low. 
I still think Manitobans would they have respect for each other, and I'm not sure the ad that had profanity in it helped the NDP that way. Even though they tried to laugh it off, people still want you to act with professionalism, with dignity. But we're it, it's a new world out there. So Richard. we've dumbed down politics to that extent. I think it's nastier, yes, and I think it's because people are desensitized to it. Well, that was what I was going to say, is that the politicians have become nastier because of, as you point to the South, what's been going on there, or as a public, are we also just okay with people being treated a certain way, or these attack ads or all the rest, Curtis? We seem to have also accepted another low. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I think with some of the, you know, if we look at the ad advertising on both sides, both the NDP ad that uh, calls Brian Pallister a not very nice name, uh, and also the uh, conservative ads that, uh, you know, really, you know, try to uh, shine a light on some of uh, Wab Canoe's, um, you know, uh, past. Uh, I think that, yeah, 10 years ago, there would have been much more of a hue and cry, or they might have had more of a boomerang effect. But now, just given the level of discourse that we're seeing because of what's happened in the U.S., I think it's become a little bit more accepted. People don't get as worked up. Are we getting the promises that we deserve at this point? Is there depth there from the, the political parties or we don't get depth during campaigns? Yeah, the, the, the parties certainly are, are putting out you know some degree of depth, but I mean, that is always one of the criticisms. I think one of the things that's interesting is over time, that criticism that you haven't costed this out or this isn't done in enough depth, I think that's um, less and less of a consideration. Uh, that's certainly in the, in the media narrative and I think also just in terms of what people are looking at in terms of uh, the promises. And, you know, again, the American election is a good case in point. I mean, a lot of people didn't believe he'd build the wall, but uh, same sort of thing. So you think the general public then, if we talk about a, a, a dumbing down or a lower level of acceptance for nasty campaigns, are we asking fewer questions as a public? Because I'd like to think in this age of being able to go online, we everyone works really hard to fact check things and, and to provide those online forums where you can be like, this is the promise, what is the truth? Are we still as a public okay with just the statement and we don't need to go much deeper in that as long as they say, we'll do better, we'll be better, we'll be stronger, Bonnie? I think the public is smarter than we give them credit for. And I, I hope so. I'd like to think in this day and age of all the times that we're in, that this would be the time where we look and say, hang on, I want to double, triple check what you're saying. I think they are. I don't know in our household. It's, it's the big joke now. If someone comes up, my kids read something online, and right away someone's going to go, fake news, because it just doesn't make sense. I think one of the things, though, is it's what would reasonable people expect you to say? So I think people look at it at a high level. They look at their background. Will they do this? I think it's hard for the NDP to say that they're going to balance the budget because they've never done that before. I think the Conservatives, they're having a tough time with health care. At the end of the day, the Conservatives... Um, and, and this is a strategy that conservatives and others have used. They're not costing out everything right away because then you've got every economist out there. You've got everybody who is a number cruncher out there saying, well, how can you do that? So why would you put yourself up for that kind of attack? So do people spend that much time thinking about all the details? No, because if they did, we wouldn't have deficits. But in the end, though, they do have to cost that out. We expect that by the end of the campaign. Yeah, and I would hold them to it. Yeah. I think the other thing to keep in mind, too, is I mean, people are literally just drowning in information and, and there's so much more that's coming out. Uh, I don't imagine, you know, I don't know if people are really going to go into it in that much depth. I mean, certainly they expect that people are going to hold them to account and make sure that it is costed out and that does happen. But uh, but I think, yeah, there's just literally so much that people are taking in uh, that it just becomes more difficult, I think, to uh, to to get that information and for people to really vet it. 
Curtis Brown is a pollster with Probe Research. Bonnie Staples-Lyon is with Changemakers Communications. She was a communications manager for the former film and government back in the 1990s. And my colleague, Loren McNabb, joining us here on Decision Manitoba 2019, the podcast. Thank you so very much for joining us. The News on CJOB with Richard Cloutier and Julie Buckingham.